1925, Henry Ford, the creator of the storied Model T automobile, among other things, built his first airplane. Or rather, he invested in a company that was building an unusual-for-the-time all-metal airplane, which was based on a German design. And then he bought the company that was making that plane and tweaked its schematics a bit and folded that effort into his larger portfolio of projects. The resultant vehicle, the Ford Tri-Motor, only ever had 199 units built and sold. But the design proved to be popular, and the industry seemed to be up for grabs and rife for innovation. So Ford decided to double down on the airline world and began work on what would eventually become known as the Ford Fliver. Now, the Tri-Motor, despite being all metal and using somewhat unusual construction methods compared to other aircraft of the era, was still more or less a standard transportation-focused aircraft. It had a cockpit, it had rows of seats, the usual setup for that market. The Fliver, though, was intended to create a new market. It was a single-seat aircraft that looked more like a World War I dogfight vehicle than something intended for the civilian market. The seat was open to the air, the propeller was out in front, and it was small, very small. Ford wanted the Fliver to be the Model T of the air, and demanded that it be designed small enough that it could fit in his office. After just a few years of testing various prototypes, though, and after having Charles Lindbergh fly one of those prototypes, and then comment that it was one of the worst aircraft he had ever flown, and after Ford's favorite test pilot, a man named Harry Brooks, died while testing the third primary prototype of the design, the Fliver project was closed for good. You can still apparently see one of the surviving flivers at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, if you're curious. I certainly plan to check it out next time I'm in the Detroit area. But beyond that, the fliver disappeared nearly as quickly as it arrived in the world. Now, the fliver, despite being unusual for the market it was trying to enter, was still very clearly a plane. It was a plane intended to occupy a facet of everyday life that planes do not currently occupy. Namely, it was intended to serve as individual transportation between relatively short distances, like from one's home to one's workplace. And thus, it was meant to compete, in some markets at least, with the automobile. But it was still a plane. But because of its unusual positioning and focus, it has been argued that the Fliver was actually less of a plane and more of a precursor to the flying car. In fact, even after the failure of the Fliver, Henry Ford continued to predict the arrival of flying cars until the day he died. It seemed like an inevitable next step to him. Almost as soon as cars became popular, then, we were already imagining sky cars. Flying vehicles of this kind have always seemed like they were just a decade away, no matter what year you happened to be living in. A few decades after the death of the Fliver, in 1949, came the Aero Car, which was developed by a Washington-based company called Aero Car International. This vehicle differed from the Fliver in that it was more or less just a super light car with airplane wings attached to it, rather than a more conventional, if tiny, single-seat plane. 
Imagine a cute little 1950s-era European car, slap a worryingly small wing on each side of it, and you have a pretty good mental image of what the aero car looked like. Only a half dozen of these were produced, and regulations changed before they could hit full throttle and work out all of the problems with the design, but the concept of a rotable aircraft, meaning a plane that you could fly from place to place and then remove the wings and continue to drive it on the road like a normal car, it definitely hit its stride around this time. The aero car took some inspiration from another design of that era called the Airphibian, which was produced a few years before, but which was more plane that could drive than car that could fly. And that distinction allowed the aero car to make it a little bit further down the development pipeline than the Airphibian managed. Almost a decade after that, in the late 50s, Ford produced a run of truly remarkable, bizarre, and very forward-thinking cars that both reflected and riffed upon existing ideas of what tomorrow looked like. One non-flying car concept that they produced was the Ford Nucleon, which, and I'm not making this up, was a nuclear-powered car that would have a small nuclear reactor in the rear of the vehicle. Now, nuclear reactors could not be made that small at the time, of course, since nuclear energy had only been harnessed a handful of years before in the final years of World War II, but the Nucleon showed that they were not messing around. Ford was trying things out, and they were not afraid to break with convention. And it's that same attitude that was responsible for a 1958 concept car produced as a scale model by Ford called the Volant Triathodyne. The Volant honestly looks cool as hell, and it's been compared in numerous car and history-related resources to either a plastic kazoo or some kind of steampunk UFO. Imagine an isosceles triangle with the small angled corner cut off, then put a dome in the middle of that triangle, and three wheels on the bottom, and three large ducted fans, basically big propellers contained inside of cylinders like an industrial fan, positioned one at each corner. Paint the entire thing metallic silver or gold, and you have yourself a Ford Volant. This vehicle is notable, even though it never went into production, or even became a full-sized concept car, because it was the first engineered VTOL, or vertical takeoff and landing, focused car that was produced by a major company. What that meant was that instead of taking off like a plane, requiring a runway to gain speed before tipping up into the air, the Volant was designed to be able to lift up vertically, taking off without needing any additional room to maneuver, and then essentially it would hover using those ducted fans as far as it needed to go. No wings required. Another concept vehicle, and this one was actually built to scale and test flown many times across several different variations on the design, was called the Piasetsky VZ8 Air Jeep, also sometimes called the Skycar. And there was a Navy-focused version of the Air Jeep called the Sea Jeep. If you imagine two massive ducted fans pointed at the ground and connected to each other 
by a seat in the middle between them, with a couple of tiny wheels at the front and back for the air jeep, and a couple of big pontoons for the sea jeep, you've got a pretty solid idea of what this thing looked like. Unfortunately, for both the Volant and the Air Jeep, another technology was coming at age around that same time, the helicopter. And although the helicopter itself was not new, and concepts that used the same general principles as modern helicopters have been around since the late 19th century, arguably even before that, the turbine-based helicopter is what allowed this vehicle to become stable, relatively affordable, and reliable across multiple industries. In the world of VTOL, vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, the helicopter outperformed the competition for the most vital applications of the day, which meant funding for car-like alternatives largely dried up, just as superior aircraft designs caused the kinda sorta a plane but kinda sorta not a plane designs of early flying cars to disappear as well. What I want to talk about today are concepts and ideas that seem to arrive at the wrong time. Ideas which take root in the public imagination but which then fail to bloom, or fail to bloom as pervasively as we thought they might, until, that is, in some cases at least, years or decades in the future. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. If you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash letsknowthings. You can also find other methods of contribution, both monetary and non-monetary, at letsknowthings.com. And if you'd like to come out and hear me speak live, say hello, get a hug or a handshake, get a book signed, I will be on tour around North America from September 2018 until September 2019. I'd love to see you if you'll be in one of the cities that I'm visiting. You can find out more about that and get your tickets at becomingtour.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Is it possible for an idea, an invention, a revolution or revolutionary way of thinking to arrive too soon? Or to invert that question, is it possible for something to arrive in a serviceable, expected form way too late, far later than it seems like should have been the case, far later than perhaps might have been the case, lacking some unexpected historical twist or some kind of minor recalibration? The article I want to start with today comes from The Verge, and it's entitled, Larry Page is Quietly Amassing a Flying Car Empire. Larry Page is the co-founder of Google, which is now Alphabet, an umbrella company containing Google and a few dozen other companies. And as you might imagine, the man is quite wealthy. He's thought to be worth over $55 billion dollars. Larry Page also owns three flying cars made by two different flying car companies, both of which he has invested in and reportedly quite heavily. Kitty Hawk, a corporation based in California, makes the Cora and the Flyer, two of the electric vehicles that Page owns, and Opener, a business originally out of Ontario but which moved to California in 2014, makes the Black Fly a somewhat menacing-looking vehicle that, if shrunk down a bit, 
would make a convincing consumer-grade drone. It is shaped like a sideways capital H with little propellers all along the H's legs. All three vehicles feel a bit like big drones, actually, and that's no mistake. They are meant to be flown like drones in some ways. All three vehicles are apparently pilotable by non-pilots. The Quora will use software to help you semi-autonomously pilot the air taxi yourself. The Flyer, which is kind of like a boat with propellers, falls under the US FAR Part 103 ultralight regulation, so it doesn't count as a vehicle that requires those sorts of highfalutin qualifications. And the Black Fly falls under those same regulations and has similar autopilotish semi-autonomous software installed. It's thought that Page is either pitching these companies against each other to increase their innovation through competition, or he's trying to corner the flying car market before it becomes a mainstream thing. It may also be that he's just a total nerd and loves these sorts of expensive gizmos, and he has enough money to fund those sorts of niche habits. Or it could be part of a grander plan to solve some of the world's currently unsolved tech-amplified problems which is something that he is definitely interested in and has spent large sums on in the past. All three vehicles, and I should note, by the way, that these are nowhere near the only vehicles in this space right now. There are about a dozen of them set to hit the market in the next two years alone. But all three of these that are owned by this one man are all vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, VTOLs, powered by electricity, moved around by propellers, pilotable by a single person without a license, that person helped along by intelligent software, and the vehicle held aloft by clever composites, ultra-efficient everything, and a layout that uses less energy, produces less noise, and takes up less space than most modern sports utility vehicles. So they're smaller than that SUV in your garage, and in some cases, they're smaller than the average sedan as well. The flying cars of yesteryear, in comparison, were kind of jagged-edged, cumbersome pieces of junk. They weren't bad, not for the time. They just weren't good in the sense that we would hope a flying car would be good. When we imagine flying cars, we think about the Jetsons, we think about hover cars, we don't think about black cloud spewing, creaking and clanking pieces of heavy machinery. And yet that's what they would have been, almost certainly, had they been developed successfully and hit mainstream acceptance back in the day, back when we first started predicting their imminent arrival. They would have created an ever-present, loud-as-hell, diesel-engine-propeller sound in our cities and towns. They would have blotted out the sky with their lead-heavy fuel-burning emissions. They would have lacked basic safety features for both the pilot and the people on the ground. They would have required the skills of a stunt pilot just to drive to work. Somehow, the science fiction of the day implied, even back then, that we were about to make a sudden leap from gas-guzzling, heavyweight, chrome-laden 50s-era automobiles rumbling around on the ground to these levitating, zip-zooming, razor-thin air cars powered by some theoretical and miraculous clean-burning fuel source, essentially overnight. Somehow, we actually thought that we were close, just years away, from having that sort of vehicle parked in every garage. Through that lens, 
it could be argued that it's actually a good thing that something like the Ford Fliver did not catch on when it was first developed. Because if it had, we may have built our environment, our world, our infrastructure around that insanely clunky version of so-called flying car technology. And that may have invested us even further in what we can now fairly safely think of as antique technology, the air-polluting stuff that's a necessary evil for the moment, because we became so heavily invested in it in many spaces, many of our cities and transportation infrastructure are reliant on such technologies even today, and these newly antique methods are now causing us no shortage of growing pains as we struggle and strain to evolve past them for environmental, business, and practical reasons. But if the fliver or one of its contemporaries would have dominated the skies, there's a chance that we would not have taken the same developmental track that we did, and we would not have ended up where we are, with an array of new, clean, relatively inexpensive technologies developed across an array of adjacent fields and industries, and which we are now able to apply to the world of personal aviation. Just one of these fields alone, that of consumer drone technology, could be pointed at as a direct source of many of the clever ideas that are being built into many of these modern flying car concepts. And there are hundreds of other industries that fed into the reality of available, affordable, reliable consumer drones, which only really became available and affordable and reliable because of those other technologies, those other realms of inquiry that made the requisite components cheaper, the technologies more powerful, the energy sources more streamlined and available. Had we not developed drones, our flying cars would not be as high quality as they seem to be at least today. And if we hadn't developed smartphones and all of their associated technologies, the tiny cameras and antennas, the touchscreens and software, the insanely small and efficient batteries, their myriad gyroscopes and accelerometers and other measuring devices, the wireless connectivity options, we wouldn't have gotten drones of the same caliber, and perhaps not at the requisite price point for a consumer industry, which is what put them on the right trajectory for the evolution they enjoyed. All that development sped up because there was money to be made from that massive consumer market. Had we not developed the microprocessor and the personal computer and the laptop and the cellular phone and a collection of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, of other technologies, not to mention all the business models and corporate systems and globalization-powered supply chains and rules of law, to make them all work together, cleanly. It is unlikely that without all of that, we would have ended up where we are today, capable of making the flying cars that we can make, the ones that Larry Page owns and the ones that many of us may soon own, or more likely, may soon rent Uber-style for individual trips in the near future. From that perspective, essentially any development can be perceived as the consequence of countless other developments. And because there are so many possible routes to take, so many ways to reach an endpoint, but also so many possible endpoints in general, so many technological, societal, economic, governmental ways that we could go, this way of looking at the world, tracing things backward to see what could have been, what could have failed to be, and what could have turned out differently, can make what eventually 
became real, what eventually bloomed atop that foundational root system, seem a lot less inevitable and a bit more precarious. It can make history seem more like a tapestry of complex, interwoven threads, and less like a single string that we follow from one end to the other in one direction. It can also make it somewhat easier to understand how seemingly innocuous, ostensibly meaningless turns of events can have outsized influence on how things turn out. Something that could have been forgotten as soon as it happened is instead, because of this swirl of possibilities, of could-be-and-might-have-been technologies and other developments, instead serves as the catalyst, as the flashpoint for one potential path that was simmering just below the surface all that time, and which then seems inevitable after the fact, looking backward in post-hoc assessment, because we fail to see that root system beneath the stem that eventually emerged from that particular plot of long-tilled soil. One well-timed, or probably more accurately in most cases, accidentally conveniently timed, step in one direction or another can swing the pendulum of history in what will later be perceived as its inexorable and destined course. And it's possible that such buildups do tend to make certain outcomes more likely than others. The flying car has seemed like an inescapable possibility since we started building ships and other vehicles. Why not make one that flies? Let's figure that out. And let's do it in such a way that we can all have our own airship. That leap of logic is not a massive one, at least over a long enough period in an environment where the invention of things and the time and resources required to build things that we want is available. But what about when it comes to potentially less obvious endeavors and inventions? What about, for instance, the exploration of the solar system and the broader universe beyond Earth? That's something that we have thought about in a lot of different ways throughout history, but it hasn't always been clear that it's even a possibility to go out past the atmosphere and explore in this way. The idea of doing so is a relatively modern invention. I often wonder how our understanding of and established presence in the solar system might be different had we kept up the pace of exploration and growth that we started with back in the 50s, running up through the 70s. The pace at which we, and by we I mean humanity, though at the time it was primarily the United States and the Soviet Union making moves up beyond the atmosphere, but the pace at which we moved back then to get out there and explore was incredible. The resources invested in these projects, in fundamental hard science, in keeping the momentum going, being the first to accomplish brazen new feats of exploration and understanding. It was astounding. But then, of course, the Cold War ended, and both the United States and the now-former Soviet Union didn't see as much point in the whole exercise. They kept going at a reduced, fairly steady pace, of course, and a whole lot of very impressive stuff has been accomplished by these governments' agencies and the space agencies of other governments around the world in the meantime. But the resources and energy invested, not to mention the pride within mainstream culture that we once attached to these sorts of things, has diminished substantially. There were plans on the books back then that would have had us building fully established moon and Mars bases decades ago. 
There were plans that could have had us more thoroughly exploring the Jovian and Saturnian moons and landing a new fleet of probes on the surface of and within the cloudy atmosphere of Venus. There were plans that could have allowed us to explore more of the most distant expanses of the solar system and to have, perhaps, sent human beings out there rather than just a few unmanned probes. But instead, we pulled back. We, and we, in this case, being the majority of the population of the human race, mostly lost interest. Space is a novelty now, not a necessity, in the minds of most people. It's fun and adventurous and vaguely important for reasons that most people probably wouldn't be able to put into words, but it's not a matter of national or species-wide pride. Every time we do some astounding new science thing, I would argue that it should be, but it's not. And yet here we are at a moment where modern business models, modern systems thinking is being applied, modern technology is being applied to the world of space and the broader space-adjacent industry web. We are seeing reusable rocket components, we're seeing integrated design systems and modular hardware, we're seeing a thriving communications industry powered by arrays of microsatellites and high-powered cameras and ultra-powerful, ultra-flexible transmission networks. Those systems evolved in part from the world of business, which has changed significantly since the 70s and did not slow down. In fact, it really only increased in scope and span post-Cold War. Those cameras and microsat components and communications antennas have evolved in large part because of the consumer electronics industries. Our phones with their tiny lenses and circuits and batteries and our manufacturing capabilities that allowed us to produce such things on scale, super cheap, allows us today to cram large quantities of them together into space-hardened shells, dramatically reducing the cost of launches and dramatically increasing the value of the payloads that we can perch atop our rockets. We could have started exploring our solar system far more thoroughly, far sooner. We could have started building bases and filling the orbits around our planet with more satellites and other infrastructure decades ago. And there very well could have been a lot of benefits to doing so. But if we had, how shoddy would those space stations be compared to what we could build today? How polluted would the space around our planet be compared to the somewhat dire but still manageable situation that we face today? How much more debris? would be up there? How much more likely would it be that because of our relative ignorance about the things that we have learned in the past few decades, that we would have made mistakes that would have doomed us to an unreversible cascade effect, filling our usable orbits with trash, and in turn disallowing the wireless revolution and the increase in fundamental knowledge about our planet and the universe that have emerged as a consequence of the relatively new arrival of modern satellites and sensory equipment? Your $50 microwave has more sophisticated processors and software built into it than the most distant human-made objects in the known universe. Because those probes launched decades ago were predicated on the technology of the age, which is today incredibly antique. It's cool as hell, amazing by the standards of the day technology, no doubt, but it's nonetheless horrendously, nearly uselessly outdated compared to any other piece of digital technology that you could produce for pennies in the modern world. So although the promise of exploring the solar system 
and making our mark out there in very real ways, permanent ways, arrived decades ago, there is a chance that, for a combination of reasons, technological, political, economical, and so on, we may have dodged a bullet. We may have benefited enough from these subsequent evolutions, these newer periods of growth in other fields, that we can today do some truly badass things that may never have happened otherwise. Had we moved forward in this space, the space of space, too quickly, too soon, we may have lacked the requisite insight, the know-how, the production capabilities to do a halfway decent job of it. And the mistakes that we might have made, brazen and brave as they may have been, could have stymied future efforts as a byproduct. We could have disallowed ourselves from trying again in the future because of our ignorance and relative lack of capabilities. This same idea, this same way of looking at things, can just as easily be applied to things like systems of government, like the ideas and movements and very small isolated events that led to the February Revolution, which in turn led to the formation of the Soviet Union, which in turn led to the widespread adoption of a specific version of the communist governmental philosophy. And it can also apply to concepts, to ideas that have always been in the ether, but whose time may or may not come in a particular era, in a particular place, because of the specific circumstances in that time and place. The broad concept of equality for all people, for instance, this is an idea that is as old as philosophy, and yet it's been applied in a wide variety of ways across all of humanity's cultures, many of them getting part way to some form of humanism before either making an exception for some traditional enemy, everyone's equal except those guys, or allowing some historical hang-up to short-circuit what might have otherwise become a truly inclusive and equitable society. There were some very high ideals written into the U.S. Constitution, for instance, and even more into the subsequent Bill of Rights and other amendments to that Constitution. But it took a very long time before African Americans, before women, before pretty much anyone who was not a white, land-owning man of procreating age was seen as anything but a second or even third-class citizen, when they were considered to be citizens, considered to be humans at all, which was not always the case. Now, I would argue that we've still got a lot of work to do in that regard, and this is well after those early efforts with the Bill of Rights, the century-later efforts post-Civil War, the remarkable work that was done during the early 20th century women's suffrage movement, the mid-20th century African-American civil rights movement, the series of LGBTQ social movements that took place from about the mid-1940s through the mid-1970s, all of which built upon each other in many different ways, but also in importantly, built upon other developments of the day. Stuff that was happening adjacent to them, like the development of mechanical tools that allowed the United States, or at least part of it, to consider moving away from the slave labor-based economic system that they had relied on from the very founding of the country, and the evolution of modern broadcast methods that helped the world become more aware of a variety of lifestyles and subcultures. It's because of all those other happenings, the continuous shifting and evolving of every aspect of life, of society, of the environment, that revisiting these concepts at different points in time can yield very different results. 
modern civil rights movements have been built on the shoulders of previous civil rights movements, certainly, but they've also been supported and amplified by the mainstreaming of the internet, the invention and availability of birth control. The new understandings that we have gleaned about genetics and the brain and the human body. And as these changes occur in the background, seemingly outside the realm of human rights, more triggers, more fuses ready to be lit become available. There are more potential tipping points, more potential pivotal moments that are sown along the path of more people just waiting to be tripped over. Just like with flying cars and space exploration, it could be that arriving at any of these turning point moments too quickly could do as much to stifle as they could potentially liberate. An idea arriving too soon can be incomplete and even harmful in some ways if it is predicated on flawed ideas or approaches or if it soaks up all the energy, pulls up the ladder behind it, rather than leading the way for whatever comes next. It's possible that Cold War-era ambitions could have continued at their breakneck pace and not mucked everything up, not polluted Earth's orbit to the point of uselessness. We could have built upon that framework and evolved faster than we have in real life. Even our consumer technologies could be better, despite part of our focus remaining out there on the stars, because that influence, those adjacency benefits, go both ways. What we learned up there, out there, could have reverberated downward back to Earth and given us gravity-wave-powered video game consoles or something else unthinkably futuristic of that nature. Today, we could be way ahead of where we are in the sense of being more technologically advanced. Now, I would argue that despite the diversity of ideas within these movements, or because of them, the various civil rights movements within the United States have actually done a great deal to seed the ground for the next movement, rather than taking their winnings and locking them in, shutting out anyone who might have come after them. But it's possible, had any one of these movements been absolutely successful at an earlier period where new rights would have been gained and then locked in because there are plenty of incentives for people who have been victimized, who are then accepted in some way, to take their winnings and then shut up because they've been accepted. They don't want to stir the pot any further. They're happy with what they got. And so that would have been understandable, but it could also have locked the door for other groups for a long while after them. So instead of one group paving the road for the next, they could have, accidentally or intentionally, as a byproduct of success, dug deep trenches and then buried mines along the path after making an initial set of changes based on a movement that perhaps arrived too soon, or at least for mainstream society, by that perception arrived too soon. That could have caused society as a whole to become more hesitant to shift or change or yield in the future for a good long while, for perhaps generations, even when the next set of changes seems to be just as beneficent and good as that last set proved to be. Now, this is not to say that I think we should retreat and rest on our laurels when it comes to moving the civil rights ball further down the field. What I'm pointing at is the tangle of influences that can cause these types of movements to stagger, to fall, or to even backpedal for a time. It may or may not be possible to accurately read those tea leaves in advance, to look at those variables and ascertain which movements, which ideas, which technologies will catch on, will arrive now, today, and which will be put back in the bottle 
for better or for worse, before they can be opened up and tasted again. But being aware of that tangle, those connections between these seemingly disconnected things, that can be valuable unto itself. This perspective can also help us hold out hope, even when it seems like the whole world is stacked against something that is currently unthinkable, but which we are convinced could and should someday happen, could make the world a better place. Now, I'm unlikely to get my gravity wave-powered video game console anytime soon, but if I step back and wait long enough, it could happen. I can see enough of those tea leaves, though. I know enough about the technologies that would be involved in this ridiculous theoretical machine that moving forward now, trying to build such a gadget today, trying to make it happen with contemporary technologies, would almost certainly result in little more than wasted money and time. And it might even accidentally break reality, for all I know. If I dabble in too many things that I don't understand, that no one understands well, that we do not have the infrastructure for, in an attempt to make that tech dream happen, I could actually set everything back, very much including my own ambition to create this sort of gadget. But when those other pieces fall into place, and perhaps I could even help them do so, if I'm feeling truly ambitious, as I'm waiting for them to age and percolate, once they are in place, there is a chance that that dream of mine could emerge a little bit later. And maybe it will even be in a superior form to what I initially envisioned, due to what has changed in the meantime. You could look back at a lot of these civil rights movements and argue that that's exactly what happened. People tried and failed and tried and failed, and in a lot of cases, they knew when to not step back, not to give up, but to put it back in the bottle, let it age a little bit. By all rights, a lot of these movements should have happened a very long time ago. Ideally, they wouldn't have even been necessary. But because they thought strategically about it, they were able to understand what they could win now and what required a little bit firmer foundation before they moved forward on. They were able to win even larger victories than they initially planned. Now that said, it's also possible that the necessary percolation, that aging process, has already occurred in the background, and all our desired revolutions require to be made manifest today is someone to create a spark, someone who will take that first scary step into the unknown, the speculative, the potentially dangerous, someone who is willing to show the rest of us how it's done, what it looks like. The difficulty here is that it's nearly impossible to know ahead of time whether these ideas are fully baked or not, which can sometimes result in our building low-quality flying cars a few generations too soon, and perhaps, theoretically, our waiting too long to build a research base on Mars. I would argue that we waited way too long to establish equal rights for African Americans in our legal structure, but it could be, and there has been informed speculation that this could possibly be true, that had anything substantial happened in this space earlier in history, it would have been stamped out by people who didn't want to see it happen, and perhaps even crippled for much longer than it was because of that stamping out, because they showed their cards too soon. Now, it's not a pleasant thought looking at things that way today through the lens of history. It's nicer to think that these sorts of movements shifts toward what we thankfully now perceive to be better outcomes. It's nice to think that those are natural and obvious, that they are inevitable. But it's possible that we could still be struggling to get those basic fundamental rights for members of our society into the legal system today had that big, ultimately effective push happened too soon or too late, had the right people not timed things correctly and skillfully 
Have they not pushed in just the right way? I find alternate history fiction to be fascinating, in large part because the good examples of the genre, at least, tend to give a nod toward what changed, what difference, large or tiny, shifted events so that they became alternate history rather than historical fact. Now, sometimes it's a known pivotal decision that they change. The president decides not to use nukes during the Korean War, despite some of his military experts telling him that it's a good idea to do so. The Spanish Armada is defeated against all odds by the British fleet. Alexander of Macedonia dies young rather than living and conquering and ruling into old age. But sometimes it's something much smaller that causes a butterfly effect, a cascade of adjusted happenstance that leads to one bullet flying along a different path. One word changed in an unknown piece of literature. One person not born or educated differently or having a different collection of childhood experiences, which then shapes them into a different person than they would have been otherwise. I don't believe in destiny, but I do believe in possibility. And the more interconnected our cultures and technologies, the more entangled our actions and words can become with those of strangers from the other side of the planet, the more potential exists just underneath the surface, germinating, gestating, growing into bulbs of maybe that we can dig up early, that we can harvest once they have revealed themselves, or that we can leave to rot on the vine, unaligned as they might seem to be, and may in fact be, with the preferences and priorities of the day. Now, this is just one way of looking at things, of course, but I find that considering the entangled nature of ideas and movements, even when it's uncomfortable to do so, to be useful in understanding what has already happened, considering what might happen next, and in putting those happenings, negative or positive or neutral, into a more appropriate and honest context. If you're enjoying Let's Know Things, consider taking a quick moment to leave a review up on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also share the show with a friend who you think might enjoy it, or you can post a quick recommendation up on your social network of choice. Word of mouth of that kind tends to be the best way to share this type of show. Thank you so very much to everyone who is already banging the drum for this show. That means a whole lot, and I appreciate it. And another way that you can support my work is to purchase one of the books that I've written. You can find a list of those, both fiction and nonfiction, at colin.io. Most of my books are available as paperbacks, as ebooks, as audiobooks, so there are a lot of different formats. You can get them wherever you get your books. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy what you read. The book that I'd like to recommend today comes from an author whose work I consistently enjoy. The guy's name is Jaron Lanier, and he wrote a book many years ago called You Are Not a Gadget that did pretty well. And it did well in part because it came out around the same time as a new book by Kevin Kelly. And Kevin Kelly is typically considered to be kind of a techno-optimist, whereas Jaron Lanier is typically considered to be kind of a techno-pessimist. And you might understand why when you hear the title of this book, which is 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. And this is a very short book. You could probably read it in two or three hours. 
But it is definitely worth the read. There is not a wasted word in this book. And despite being known as a techno-pessimist, I would actually argue that the author is optimistic about the potential of technology, but disappointed about many of the elements of the modern application of technology. And most of the arguments in this book are not about the inherent evilness of social media or the internet or anything. The guy actually coined the term virtual reality. He was one of the inventors and scalers of the technologies that led to the modern internet. I think he was one of the creators of Second Life. He's very involved in technology, and he knows technology incredibly well. He just believes that technology is not living up to its potential. And a lot of the reason for that, as he explains in this book, are the business models that have led to a system in which we participate on the internet through apps, through the web, through pretty much all of the mediums that we have to access each other and the communities on the internet, and tools like search engines, we are being manipulated consistently, and we are being manipulated to behave in certain ways, to treat information and each other and ourselves in certain ways, and that the idea of having the good aspects, the positive psychological well-being reinforcing aspects of social media, having that without all the downsides that are super evident, that's a possibility, and it's something that we consider. But in order to do so, we need to recognize that the good and bad aspects of social media are not inextricable. We can separate them and do things differently. We just have to decide that we want to do so and to quite possibly change our perception of how we fund certain types of work and view and utilize some of these incredibly powerful tools that we have built. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now by Jaron Lanier. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. While there, you might consider signing up for my free newsletter. That isn't really a newsletter for Let's Know Things. It's really just a collection of links to interesting things that I send out on Mondays. And you can find out more about my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice, if you are indeed still on any social networks after reading that book. You can find me pretty much everywhere at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.